I'm Roger, and this is Two Vets Upstate. And as always, please take a few seconds after the episode to give us a rating and review. Thanks, especially to those of you who have done this already. It helps us reach more folks and helps keep our content fresh and relatable, like Wegmans. Uh, Speaking of Wegmans, Andrea, what are you eating or drinking on your travels today? So... Dear audience, dear listeners, I once again joined the podcast from overseas as I am once again on reserve duty in Stavanger, Norway. And uh, so I am eating, um, I'm going to butcher how this is supposed to be pronounced, but which is actually basically just a, it looks like a Kit Kat bar, but it's just in this other multicolored wrapper. It's chocolate bar. Um, It's dinner time. And I'm staying in the Airbnb and didn't feel like cooking, so I definitely ate a chocolate bar for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, no, what about no, no judgment here. Uh, I am fresh off a trip from upstate New York, so I am reasonably well stocked um, with some wine from Kalaka Estates uh, in Fairhaven, New York. I stopped by there uh, this weekend after apparently the uh, Fairhaven Pirate Festival this weekend in Fairhaven, New York. Apparently they didn't get my memo that it was supposed to be called the Privateer Festival, but you know, not everybody's dad jokes land. So I guess we've got that uh, for us. Andrea, what is going on with you? You're in Norway, you're saving the world. I mean, that's pretty standard as our listeners know. Yeah, casual. yeah, I am in Norway um, doing my NATO thing. I did get to hike to Pul- Pulpit Rock over the weekend, so that was really cool. Um, before I left, I got to meet Derek Coy at the New York State Health Foundation, awesome. um, where we're looking forward to doing a, a live podcast at, at some point in the fall, um, and then a lot of other things going on. So uh, the announcement for the Modern War Institute went out. So I will be a non-resident fellow starting next month at the Modern War Institute at West Point. And I officially have a new column hosted on task and purpose called The Bridge. Uh, The column is specifically a home to talk about transition issues, particularly regarding taking different paths out of the military. And it's really a home for um, voices that are not normally showcased in the military veterans blogosphere. So I really would love people to come uh, write for me, um, to come write for the bridge, especially, especially if you've never written before. Um, if you check out, um, check out my Twitter, I've put a link on there on um, how you can pitch to me with a Google Drive. So yes, come to the bridge on task and purpose. Roger, what about you? Well, congratulations. That's, that's big news. Uh, the bridge is going to be really successful and um, look forward to talking about a lot of those stories here as well. Like I mentioned, just quick from me, I was at the State Fair, the great New York State Fair, uh, this weekend in Syracuse uh, with my wife and daughter. We saw a lot of sheep, which apparently my daughter loves. Um, we saw a lot of cows and horses, had a lot of wine slushies. True story, or I guess true fact, don't go to the state fair on Friday and plan to go for a long run on Saturday morning uh, because, uh, spoiler alert, you will not. 
But for anybody else who is going to go to the state fair, especially veterans in New York, highly recommended. It. it is just is a blast and it gets better uh, every year. 30 August, August 30th, which I think is what this Thursday is Veterans Day. So you get in free if you're a veteran. A lot of great veteran stuff going on there. The Veterans Barn is uh, really cool with a lot of great booths set up uh, and things to do. Um, if you can't go on Veterans Day, though, it's just $10 for admission uh, any other day. And I highly recommend it. So from there, Andrea, why don't we talk about what's going on in the rest of New York? Yeah, so there's currently a bill floating around the New York State Legislature that would change the legal age to serve alcohol. Um, that would affect many bars and wineries. Um, the, the change would be to ch change the legal age to serve alcohol from 18 to 21. Um, it would also change microbrewery and winery rules for how much a sample size can be and how many a cust customer can order. Um, Roger, if you want to talk about why this is, um, you can kick it off from here. <laughs> uh, I just sort of wonder why, why we do the things that we do. I know. Why do we have to make things so hard? Right. And we don't consider the second and third order effects, right? Like I was a, I grew up in a small town where we had maybe two restaurants. I worked in one of them. I was a dishwasher. And then I was lucky enough before I graduated high school to be um, a server, right? A, a waiter. And this is going to seriously negatively impact, you know, the young and working class populations in not just, I guess, our small towns like the ones I grew up in, but I can see it affecting everywhere across the state. And, and why, why are we doing this, especially when the microbrewery and our winery scene are some of our up and coming, most successful small businesses? Doesn't make a lot of sense when we've got a lot of other stuff to worry about and to focus on. Yeah. And uh, so John, uh, Rep. John Catgo, uh, 24th District, also held a town hall in Lyons, New York, in Wayne County on veterans issues. Um, so it's re-election season when incumbents come home for town halls, unless they are my member of Congress who has not held a town hall in the whole two years and he's been seated. A lot of them tend to use veterans as, as props. Um, Roger, I think you tweeted about this issue. I did. You know, it's, yeah, you can definitely tell when it's re-election season, right? And if you're going to have a town hall and you're a veteran and you're running for office or you're in office, just hold a town hall, right? Don't, I'm not a big fan of using props. I think it's clearly a smarmy political move that, uh, and that's smarmy, not any other positive word. That's a negative word uh, that distracts from the real issues. The good thing that came out of this town hall was that there was a lot of confusion and the congressman was up on stage. Of course, you could only see this if you went to the event, which is not accessible for a lot of the veterans in Wayne County where this was held. There's a lot of confusion because, as we know, there are a ton of veteran-focused nonprofits and groups, and choice overload for veterans is a real thing. And they don't necessarily know, 20,000 veterans we have in Wayne County, they don't necessarily know who the proxies or who the agents are to help them navigate through that process of getting the benefits that they have earned, especially as those benefits and those policies change, and they are changing every day almost. So I, I took to Twitter and, and I'll post it on the show notes, but for veterans, uh, especially in the 24th district where CACO is at, 
Um, you can go to Clear Path for Veterans in Chittenango, which covers a lot of central and upstate New York. Uh, and also, I, I point people at the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University. Andrew, I don't know if you have any, uh, any recommendations for folks in your neck of the woods. It seems like every month there's been a veteran fair on usually on a Friday or a Saturday. Um, there's also Hudson Valley Veterans Alliance and vet to vet but those are down in Dutchess County. I'm still honestly trying to figure out Columbia County, trying to find something that doesn't require going, basically going into a, another, I mean, crossing county lines. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. But right now, t- typically, there's a 45-minute to an hour drive to go to anything that's, that's that robust. Use your county veteran service officers. You probably don't, may, not, you may or may not even know that they're there. They usually are in the, the county municipal building. They can help you with your claims. They can help you with all of, you know, a lot of those benefits. There's still a lot of work to be done. This is, again, another reason why we should care about veterans issues at the state level and not just the federal level. Um, but because right now they don't really do anything on education. Um, but use your county v- uh, county VSOs. Um, and hey, if you have, if, if they, they are not useful to you, um, get in touch with your state legislature le- uh, representatives, your, your assembly member, your state senator, because if we don't know about what the challenges are, they're very difficult to fix. And something that we've noticed is that a lot of the challenges that people um, very justifiably complain about are actually state level issues, not VA federal level issues. So that was another thing to mention. We have these in our notes in a different order, but I'm going to do the uh, bad one first. And that is just to say quickly and not spend a lot of time on, well, let's just call it garbage. If you're a veteran and you're considering running for public office or you win public office and you are an incumbent going through the day-to-day life of being a congressperson, Don't be Duncan Hunter, representative from San Diego, California. Don't do what he did. I'll link in the show notes to a lot of the really reprehensible things that it's alleged that he did. But also in your response to the allegations, don't throw your spouse under the bus. I mean, can we just all get together on that as, just don't do that, okay? Uh, this This is a textbook case in that mm-hmm. was that was a strong moment. It was like he could, he could not have been like what had happened. It could not have happened to a nicer guy. I say that tongue in cheek, um, and then he and then he goes and does that. It was just solid bottom dweller behavior. Agreed. And now pause respectfully. We want to pass our condolences to the family of Senator John McCain, who over the weekend passed away at the age of 81. Uh, He was a POW. He was a senator, a war hero in my book, but we certainly want to thank him and his family for their many years of service and continued service. Um, My friend Jack, we graduated from the Naval Academy together in 2009. Just a huge loss for our country. Definitely our our thoughts are with the family of, of Senator McCain and it was very clear yesterday that how, how much his service and commitment to our nation, whether or not you always agreed with him, we've lost a giant. 
it's tough to find the words when you lose someone. This way. <laughs> yep, I agree. So today on the podcast, we're pleased to introduce Pam Campos Palma, an impactful political strategist, movement leader, and speaker with an impressive record in governance, international policy, civics, and social change. Pam is a U.S. Air Force veteran. She served for over a decade as an op intel analyst, specializing in geopolitical strategic analysis, mission planning, training, and counter-violent extremism, and served all over the world. She's been recognized internationally for her transformative leadership and advocacy initiatives. She served as a gubernatorial appointee in the state of Oregon and actively addresses issues of global peace and security, equity, civic engagement, from the grassroots to the treetops. So she's received a number of accolades um, from the UN Population Fund. Um, she's been named as 40 under, one of the top 40 under 40 Latinas in foreign policy by the Huffington Post. She's currently part of Beyond the Choir, a strategy and training group that partners with movement leaders and organizations and is the executive director of Common Defense a national grassroots political action committee that mobilizes diverse veterans and military families in civic action, movement building, and more equitable democracy. She's been featured on NBC, CNN, BBC, NPR, and has an MPA from NYU with a focus on international policy and management, and she's a member of the Truman National Security Project Defense Council. So, Please welcome to the podcast, Pam Campos-Palma. Pam, welcome. Thanks. I'm so honored, so excited to be on. Well, Pam, can you tell us where and how you grew up? Yeah. So I was born and raised uh, in a suburb outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, called Quincy. Um, And every time I think about it, I laugh because it feels like another lifetime and a piece of me that I feel, you know, is, is gritty Pam. I call her hood Pam sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I grew up in a very, uh, Irish Catholic blue collar community. Uh, my mother, uh, immigrated to the United States when she was eight months pregnant with me from Honduras. Um, and I enlisted, uh, out of high school. Uh, so I was plucked out of a very diverse you know, working class community, uh, to go to a gifted children's school. Um, and my world kind of got flipped upside down. (laughs) And I went to a more affluent, more white community, uh, which, you know, I often say I was politicized as a child in a really major way due to my life experiences. Um, class of 700, you know, uh, kids in high school, I was in the top SAT performers and in the bottom 2% GPA scores, uh, because school wasn't for me. Um, I was not challenged enough. I also experienced a lot of racism and classism and, uh, yeah, uh, it was my mother who took me to the recruiter's office and she, you know, saw it as a pathway of opportunity, um, of upward mobility. And she herself is, I think she saw an Air Force commercial at some point and, um, just, you know, loves is, is all about red, white, and blue, everything Patriot, um, and, and really wanted me to serve. So, so yeah. What particular stories of service, um, exemplify your experience in the Air Force? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think because I, you know, 
I have so many different identities and my experience is so dynamic. It's, it's such a loaded question, right? I mean, I often say that when people ask me what's an example of service, I usually go back to, to my mom, to, to growing up in Boston and seeing my mom work two, three jobs as a clinical nurse assistant, um, you know, take me to soccer uh, and also take me to go volunteer at a soup kitchen. And so I think civic service, right, volunteer service, communal service has always been kind of the backbone of everything that I think about. And when I joined the Air Force, it was kind of my first moment to really prove myself, right? I uh, didn't get to walk at high school graduation. Um, I even had a, a, a high school guidance counselor who assumed uh, in a really racist way that I would fail at life and told my mom that, you know, I shouldn't even apply to college uh, because it would be a wasted investment. And so the Air Force really, to me, was the opportunity to prove myself, to to flex my muscles. And so um, I really believed in the, in the core values, right? Service before self, excellence in all we do, uh, integrity first. You know, I was really kind of a nerd. I was kind of the, the go-to airman. And um, it was hard, I think, you know, so there, I, I think I have like a spectrum of experiences, both good and bad, that further politicized me, further kind of shaped my worldview. And on the good end, you know, I was 19 when I was briefing, you know, high level commanders, people with PhDs and I myself only had a high school degree talking to people about geopolitical, you know, state of Pakistan. Um, and I think to be in a room full of largely older white men as a very young, you know, <laughs> sticking out like a sore thumb Latina uh, airman. Uh, who grew up working class that really made me very interested in, in power um, and who gets to make the rules, who gets to deliver the message. And on the other side, it was gritty. It reminded me a lot of home, right? I grew up in a place where you had to really fight and defend yourself in a lot of ways. And I felt like a lot of my service was that was fighting to prove myself fighting, um, you know, warding off harassment, to be honest, um, and demanding respect. And at the end of the day, one of the, where all of this really aligns is I found a lot of virtue in serving with people that were wildly different from me, right? I grew up with people that were wildly different from me. I was usually, you know, I usually say that my story of self is a story of being a disruption no matter where I went, right? If I'm at school, I stick out. If I go to church, I'm the only brown kid there. If, I go, if I'm in the Air Force, you know, I'm the only woman of color in the room, right? Um, and that really, I think, fortifies you in a way where you, you have to hyper-focus on the mission. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people that I built with, that I joined with, um, were, were white dudes in the Air Force that were looking to me for counsel or mentorship, right? Um, so I think... I think that it only steepened my passion for serving others um, because even though I feel like service is sometimes really difficult and selfless, it, it takes a high level of commitment, right? Um, and that's something that transcended from my childhood all the way to, you know, my Air Force days is that you, you kind of have to be committed to everyone around you. It's not just about you, right? It's about all of us growing and, and being and building together. 
Yeah, I, I feel you, Pam, on the uh, on the fellow nerd front, especially as another working class kid uh, from rural America who came in and was a little disappointed by sort of the culture uh, that you thought it was going to be one way and everybody was going to uphold the values. Mm-hmm. Um, but then finding out that that is not necessarily the case everywhere was uh, something that still is difficult to grapple with. I want to ask you a little bit about your transition from the uniform. How did that go? And is there, is there anything that was remarkable about that for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the beginning of my military career was, was really fruitful. Like I said, I was the go-getter airman. I, you know, uh, went from being volunteer, like I went from volunteering for, for everything to being voluntold and really excelling. Um, and there was definitely a part in my military career where I had a pretty intensive experience with bad leadership, as I think a lot of us do, right? Um, abuse of power, fraud, waste, abuse. Um, and it definitely informed a lot of my politics, I think, um, especially, like I said, I'm very fascinated with power, who holds it, who wields it, how do we build it? Um, and so in active duty, I... Uh, I started organizing in the military, right? I think I lived under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I, um, you know, saw the, the fraught state of, of sexual crimes and violence in the, in the military. And so, you know, as, as I was in a unit that had poor leadership um, and, frankly, officers that, that weren't leading in the way that they should have, I started organizing junior enlisted because I saw, you know, there was rampant sexism, racism, Um, There was even a policy at one point that no junior enlisted woman could ever be put up for an award. Um, I think at one point I was, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, And I was even forced to salute a a fellow uh, enlisted person once to make me an example. Um, So, so that I think, you know, and and the military is probably the worst place to organize people (laughs) uh, for change and to like contest power. And so, you know, I, I ended up transitioning to the reserves because I was still really curious about maybe getting a commission and I wanted to make change from the inside. And I, I just was really bought into serving fellow airmen, right? Like at this point I was being sought for counsel by colonels to like junior enlisted and I knew I could make a difference. Um, so I did go to the reserves and while I was in the reserves, I also was so starved for community, um, especially other folks that shared my background. So I threw myself into politics. I threw myself into community organizing, uh, predominantly immigrant rights and and farm worker rights in Oregon. And and it was really tough, I think, to battle both worlds because the more I was building in the civilian world, the more my, you know, Intel public affairs officer was like, you can't do that, right? Like, and and what was really fascinating to me is that that's where I started doing uh, public speaking. I would be invited to Google to talk about my journey as a woman of color in the military, right? As a Latina. And things that frankly were not political were deemed political, right? I wasn't saying anything that was harsh about the military. I wasn't even airing our dirty laundry. I was just talking about my journey because I knew what it felt like to jump into the military blindsided without any guidance. And I wanted to give other people the tools to make their own decisions. And so I think my transition, you know, I, I, I feel like it never really happened until this past year where I officially got out of the reserves, 
I, you know, my, 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 my car doesn't work anymore. <laughs> um, I'm a full veteran. And so I feel like I'm still in this place of transition where, you know, there are moments where I miss the uniform so badly. Uh, but I now am serving a different mission. I'm serving a different purpose where I need to be hyper-political, right? And pretty different. And what's fascinating is that so many people from my military life really follow me. Um, but so I feel between worlds, right? Um, you know, a lot of Chicana authors call it between borderlands. Um, and so that's where I find myself. I feel like I'm still transitioning. Um, yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of folks that I've spoken to recently who are transitioning out of the military say they don't even understand where that they, they fall on the political spectrum. What advice would you have for people who are really trying to figure out, really trying to figure out where they stand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of my work and fascination is that, you know, on the one hand, while you're in the military, you're told, you know, you can't, there's a very confused mixed message, I think, of what is civic engagement and political voice of people who are in the military, right? Of course, you can't go to a rally with your uniform, but supposedly we're encouraged to vote, right? Um, all of these other things. And so, you know, I, I personally, and that's my work now, is to develop a new political voice for us because there has been a political monopoly. And frankly, I mean, I think across the entire political spectrum, we know that as a society, we're allergic to politics. It's confusing. We're, you know, riddled with labels that now have so much weight to them, right? Um, and I've, I was that person too. I, I grew up and I knew that I, I grew up influenced very heavily by my mother, but I also found conflicting messages in my blue collar, very conservative Boston town. Um, and at a lot of the times I felt like I didn't have a, an identity and many of us are political orphans. But I think it's about drilling down on our values, right? Like, what is, what is, what is the community, society, and country we want to be and we want to be proud of and that we need to work towards, right? Um, because, you know, there are a lot of problems in the world and there's a lot of problems that we can... There's, there's a laundry list of things that we need to change, um, but it all goes down to, like, at the end of the day, who are you as a person? What do you care about? And I think that when we can drill down on that... Um, Veterans particularly, right, um, can speak to a lot of different folks. Um, and I think we're in a moment of like a new renaissance of political identity. And veterans should be on the tip of the spear to, to define that, right? One of the things that we mentioned earlier that as I'm beginning my own transition and sort of following in the footsteps of you and, and Andrea is, you know, this notion of choice overload and where, you know, especially for those who want to do the most good, uh, veterans after service, uh, where, where do you apply that? Um, and how, how do you choose? So, you know, as someone with, with your experience, um, what do you look for in potential ways to get involved? Uh, and, and what do you think veterans should look for, um, as they, as you say, drill down into their values to figure out, okay, I was frustrated or inspired by my time in the service. And now how do I translate that into doing effective good on that, on the outside? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I will just say as someone who organizes veterans is that veterans are among the hardest constituency groups to organize. And a lot of that is just because we're, um, 
a couple of things. I think that, like you said, there's an overload of what advocacy can look like, right? Um, and if you ask, if you ask 10 different people, how do you define advocacy? They'll tell you something different, right? Um, the second thing is that we're also pigeonholed in a lot of ways, right? Like there, the advocacy that is offered to us as veterans, you know, it's frustrating. It, and sometimes it's insulting, right? I mean, I often say that veterans care about the VA. Sure. We also care about other things. We care about climate. We care about the economy, right? We care about, you know, peace and war. Um, and so the way that it is, it is fascinating to me how veterans are amplified as these tokens, um, and symbols, but also reduced to nothing, right? Reduced to drones that don't have their own civic voice or or opinion. Um, and so it's a fascinating thing to me where people say, why do people have such a hard time coming home? And it's like, A, their home has changed dramatically while they were gone. And B, you've not really given them an outlet or much uh, levity, right, to get involved and be a part of their community again, right? You told them to just sit at the VA and try to figure that out. Um, So I think for me, what I look for is definitely a distinction between, you know, what are we trying to achieve, right? For me personally, my, my life goal, and I actually think that many veterans should consider what is our political power, right? At the end of the day, if you want to make change, if you want to organize for change, you, you do need to build a power. And right now, the power of veterans is not in our hands, right? Too often I see veterans who have been used as political props. You know, um, I'll go on a little bit because this is something really important and I'm passionate about. You know, we don't talk often about, about we don't talk often enough about the politics of memory, right? When people are reduced to nothing, mm-hmm. when people are used as ornaments and political props, they remember that and it stays with them for generations sometimes. The parallel between veterans politically and immigrants is something I'm deeply passionate about and very fascinated by, you know, uh, um, and you see it, right? If you have like a Vietnam, a Vietnam era vet, it's not the best example, right? Cause that was a very particular experience, but if they're so dissuaded to join in politics then their children will be dissuaded, right? It is a crippling effect for generations to come. Um, and so for me, I think understanding the lines of what we want to achieve, is it advocacy or is it activism, right? Is it political or is it, you know, nonpartisan services? Um, so for me, the things I look for is what exactly, what exactly am I trying to change? What is the issue area? And if it, sometimes if it, it could be totally vet related and sometimes it's not, you know, I, I'm seeing tons of vets go into the climate justice movement um, because we're, you know, if you come from a rural background and you deployed five times and, you know, the Standing Rock kind of folks, they know that we've been trying to, to help with things like that. Um, and on the other hand, I also look at who's leading, right? Um, I think veterans are starved for a different kind of leadership, not just the hua you know, war porn lovers of like all things violence, yes. right? Like we're more complex humans than that. Um, veterans are looking for depth and for true meaningful leadership because we might've seen heroic leadership in our service. We might've seen atrocious. I have so many words. I don't think I can use, um, you know, um, people that are asked backwards and led us into absolute fraught situations with high ramifications and war. 
right? So we understand leadership. And so we're starved for it as when we transition. So that's what I look for. A lot of folks, uh, myself included, I guess, have talked about what it means to be uh, an ally uh, to non-white, male, straight, cisgender, Christian, you know, the non-ruling class, essentially, uh, in the service and beyond. Um, I'm sure this is a question you get a lot, but recently um, you've said that, look, the minorities in your life can't just be a whipping board for constant questions about how to do this or how to do that or what is offensive and what isn't. I'm wondering if you can, if you want to talk about this a little bit and at the risk of asking maybe another how-to question, um, can you talk about how folks can avoid adding more emotional stress to people in populations that are already shouldering a pretty righteous load? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I'll start by saying it's, it's messy, right? And I, I, anyone that knows me knows that I love messiness um, because I think that it's in the gray areas and in the messiness that you find the solutions, right? Um, so I think, I think at the end of the day, I mean, you said it really well. Uh, we are, the reality is, is that we are in a system where there's a hierarchy and some people matter and some people don't. And that I think, you know, I often think that we're just positioned to have blind spots and all of us are looking for help to get along. Um, but I think the bigger question, the question that I always ask is, you know, how are we trying to share and shift power? How are we trying to share and shift power? Wokeness is the new currency, right? Wokeness is the new kind of social capital. And, you know, what I think about a lot is that there are, there is a new tendency for folks to want to have the jargon, to want to have the language. Um, and too often what has happened is that, um, yeah, people of color become the educators, the laborers, the, the fixers, um, but they're not elevated into new power, right? They, they do a lot of the work and white folks keep the mic, right? And this is p- particularly really destructive in the veteran community because we already, our hierarchy is even more, you know, steep, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's not just straight straight white, you know, cis that it's also like, how hard are you? How, you know, who and special ops were you, right? <laughs> like, um, it's, there's even more of a linearity, um, that, that creates, you know, from top to bottom, a long, long chasm. Um, and so, so for me, I think about, we all have to ask ourselves, right? All of us, what is the work that I'm actively doing, right? On my own, what is the labor that I'm willing to commit? What is the skin in the game that I'm putting forth? Um, because ultimately, like this, this, this can get, it can be a slippery slope, right? For people, I usually say it's the people for which the rest of us revolve around, right? To just simply ask, like, tell me how to do better, you know? And also, I want you to, like, check in on me and let me know. Um, and I think that, you know, in a perfect world, that would be great but we still have a long ways to go and people of color, particularly, um, you know, trans folks, disabled folks, all frontline and targeted communities are already shouldering such a burden. And so for me, the place that we start 
is doing our own work, right? There are many times where I'm asked about things where the person who asked me clearly has done no work themselves, has not even looked it up, has not even come to me with a baseline. And so I have to wonder, like, how committed are you, right? Or am I just like the token that is giving you the check mark for being a good white person today? Hmm. Um, And the second question is, how are we building trust? You know, I mean, across the world, right? I mean, we're we're looking at a rise of right-wing populism because we have not reckoned with our history and we haven't reckoned with, with how how violence and racism and and oppression, systematic oppression has really, really injured and fragmented trust across different peoples while we're in an ever globalizing world, right? Like we're only getting more diverse and diversity is messy because that means people come together with different needs. And so it always has to start with trust building. And so, you know, if you're asking for someone without going to them from a good place of departure, asking for their labor and time and, and trust isn't there, that, then that's something also to, to reckon with, right? Um, and just also noticing that people are injured and hurt, you know? Um, that's, I think, the hard part of it, the messy part of it is that, um, you know, there's been, been many times where either... I've, I've had experiences where even in the military, I've had people t- cheers to white power in my face all the way to, you know, passive microaggressions from white folks wanting to like touch my hair or, um, you know, tell me that they're darker than I when in the summer, um, weird stuff. (laughs) Um, right. And so that, that all fragments trust. Right. And, and I do, I, I don't have all the answers, but I am curious about how we build trust together. Um, and I do think it's all about thinking about labor and support. Right. I mean, I, I, I can't police all the white folks in my life or I would, I would die out. <laughs> I would literally, you know, <laughs> dissipate from yeah. exhaustion. Right. But there are people that are worth investing in. And I also think that we have to be unafraid of making mistakes. Right. Um, because it's almost like we're walking on eggshells, right. Which, which doesn't really help that trust building. Um, so it's, it's, it's true to my form, not a perfect, you know, or linear answer, but it's, it's, it's a non-perfect, not linear problem, you know? So I think it's all about doing the hard work. Uh, and it starts with investigating where we're coming from. Right. I mean, sometimes I ask a lot of folks that I really love, like, have you ever asked yourself why you are never surrounded by black and brown folks? You know, like, do you make an effort to like learn of another culture and embrace it? You know, um, and I think when folks do the work to like really analyze, like, how did I land at this place where I'm not helping, I'm hurting, right? Um, then we can get a lot farther along. Thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts and insight. Um, what do you have any parting, parting thoughts for our listeners? Um, I mean, I would also just say that, um, one, super thankful for the two of you and all the good work you're doing. I mean, upstate New York is particularly a fascinating place that we need to do more organizing in. And veterans have such an amazing power, you know, to reach these critical places where we need to win real change for everyone, right? Um, and so I definitely think that it's not just about how do you be a good ally to people who are different from you, but how are we being good to each other? right? How are we cleaning up our own backyards and holding our own folks accountable, right? I mean, at the end of the day, 
I, I often say that one of the things I loved the most about the military is I didn't care if you were, you know, an O6 or an E2, like if you had something in your teeth, I'm going to tell you, right? Like we have to have each other's backs, no matter how hard it is, right? Like that's the camaraderie that supposedly we're supposed to build. And we cannot be afraid to confront and hold each other accountable with kindness and love and calling people in, right? And so you know, places that are so key, rural places where rural progressives feel alone and stifled. Um, There's so much more abundance if we can actually come together, right? So I'm super eager to see, you know, leading voices of principle and true honor and, and civic change in upstate New York, all across New York, because I do think that we can translate the change we need in our localities, but also, you know, there could be someone in Indiana that sees a striking model in upstate New York, right? And, and we can be the bridges across movements. I genuinely, deeply believe it. I mean, it's why I'm spending these long hours organizing vets and I'm excited. I'm excited about, you know, our movement. I'm excited about having agency and, and for vets to really kind of step into their own leadership politically. Um, so yeah, that's all I would impart. And, and just thank you again for having me on. Well, Pam, thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, your story, your voice, your work is so inspiring to me personally. Thank you for what you do. You certainly have an open door, uh, open telephone to this podcast anytime you want. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today, Pam. Yep, totally. Always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We're ready to wrap this up. Yep. Uh, Andrea, uh, we hope to get you back from Norway soon, maybe in time for the next podcast. Can you confirm or deny? I will be in upstate New York for the next podcast. Um, I think we're going to be podcasting. Ooh, we have to talk about it because it's going to be Jewish New Year the next time we would be podcasting. So we'll have to revisit that. Guys, it's, it's also like it's back to school and it's Jewish New Year and I can't believe I'm excited for it to not be summer anymore. But <laughs> yeah. I feel you acutely. To all of our communities out there, to everybody in upstate New York, I hope you've enjoyed this really inspiring conversation today. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. Keep having each other's backs. And Andrea, I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Same here. Take care, everyone.